This is Reclaiming the Narrative, Rochester's community-powered news radio show for Friday, July 30th. Coming up... The City of Rochester offers several programs designed to keep residents cool during the summer, but are they accessible to everyone? Then, could a new act in Congress help us get more mileage out of our electronic devices? Plus, an upcoming summer camp teaches teens the art of digital storytelling with a social justice angle. And we pay tribute to pioneering radio journalist Glenn Ford, co-founder of the Black Agenda Report. All that and more on this week's edition of Reclaiming the Narrative. For Friday, July 30th, it's time for In Case You Missed It, this week's local news in brief. The City of Rochester held a Violence Prevention Summit Thursday. Among the local and national experts who participated was Devon Boggin, founder of the California-based violence interruption program Advance Peace. Boggin said, providing alternative opportunities to people involved in cycles of retaliatory violence was key. Thursday's summit comes amidst a two-month law enforcement surge in Rochester. The so-called Viper Task Force says it has made 45 firearms-related arrests and 39 violent felony arrests in the last two weeks in Rochester and Buffalo. Rochester has seen 41 homicides in 2021 to date, compared with a yearly average of 33 for the last 10 years. Assemblymember Damon Meeks is calling for the creation of safe injection sites in Rochester. During a press conference Monday with Monroe County Legislator Rachel Barnhart, Meeks said the facilities would help lower the number of fatal overdoses from opioids. New York State is set to receive a billion-dollar opioid settlement. The lawmakers say that money should be used for the clean injection sites. An Irondequoit police sergeant quietly resigned last week following an off-duty incident at a local bar. Former Sergeant Jason Hughes is alleged to have used a racial slur during a July 17th dust-up at Temple Bar on East Avenue. Less than a week later, he resigned. The Irondequoit town supervisor and police chief subsequently released a joint statement calling Hughes' actions, quote, entirely inconsistent with the values of the Irondequoit Police Department, town government, and the entire Irondequoit community, end quote. According to 13 Wham, the former sergeant was also the president of the police union and had been disciplined for an off-duty altercation at a bar in the past. The Brighton Town Board heard over four hours of public comment Wednesday in an ongoing controversy surrounding town board member Robin Wilk. It's the second time the board has heard comment on the matter after some residents began petitioning to remove Wilk from the town's diversity committee over a Facebook post from May in which Wilk wrote, Free Palestine. Wilt's critics claim that statement is anti-Semitic, but on Wednesday, Wilt once again condemned anti-Semitism while reaffirming her support for Palestinian human rights. And finally, immigrant advocates are raising concerns about the newly announced restrictions New York State has placed around its so-called excluded worker fund. The Worker Justice Center of New York said Thursday the restrictions could prevent thousands of essential workers from accessing the $2 billion the state has set aside for pandemic relief. Specifically, advocates criticized the fact that applicants must show a 50% loss of income due to the pandemic, a higher threshold than for other government assistance programs, and they say applicants must present, quote, onerous documentation. 
The New York State Department of Labor, who is responsible for the rules, has not responded directly to the criticisms, but says it is committed to working with stakeholders. And those are some of this week's local headlines. This is Reclaiming the Narrative, Rochester Community Power News Radio Show, produced for WXIR 100.9 FM and rebroadcast on WAYO 104.3. I'm Vanessa Ryland Buntley. And I'm Darian Lehman. Now on to our top stories. The City of Rochester has a number of programs designed to help residents cool off during the summer months. But are current city programs actually accessible to all those living in the city? Our reporter Laura Smith has more. Urban heat is generated by human activities and urban planning. Planning design choices, like whether a sidewalk has trees for shade, can have a significant impact on the heat of an area. Two weeks ago, we reported on Climate Central's report that Rochester City is six degrees hotter than the surrounding area, and that Rochester is in the top 50 cities in the US for urban heat. Last week, we sat down with the city's Energy and Sustainability Manager, Shalani Beath, to discuss long-term plans to address that heat. This week, we look at it from the perspective of those living in the city, and ask whether current programs actually help those most impacted by urban heat. Rochester has implemented a number of programs to mitigate urban heat issues. The city has a cool sweep program with longer hours at pools and spray parks when temperatures exceed 85 degrees and some libraries and rec centres are open as emergency cooling centres on days where temperatures exceed 90 degrees. The city also has the Sustainable Homes Rochester program which is an informational campaign designed to encourage residents to install clean heating and cooling technologies and improve home energy efficiency. The program seeks to connect people with grants available to make investments in upgrades to cool homes more affordable. However, these programs have practical limitations. For example, the cool sweep does not operate on Sundays regardless of the temperature. The Sustainable Homes program faces criticisms for being inaccessible to those renting in the city as landlords are reluctant to make these kinds of investments. Shalani Beath acknowledges this concern from tenants and explained that the city has carried out a mailing campaign specifically targeting landlords. They are seeking to emphasize the significant benefits for landlords in making improvements. Um, And then we also mentioned to landlords that, you know, reducing your the utility bills for tenants um, is is a good thing because not only does it benefit tenants because they'll have to pay less every month for their utilities, but um, certainly will help them, you know, save more money as well. So and and perhaps it'll allow them to stay in the apartments longer. So it's definitely, um, you know, sometimes I think there's this notion about, well, I'm not going to get anything out of it as a landlord, but that's not true. The Citywide Tenants Union reports that issues of heat can be even more basic than a failure to insulate or invest. The union has seen many tenants that have issues with their windows not being able to open and close, issues which have not been addressed by landlords. This creates a ventilation issue, but also it prevents tenants from installing their own window AC units. City resident Kawana Smith currently rents her home and described the kind of issues she sees with heat in her building. Oh, it's hot because we don't have central air and it's like you're on fire sometimes. And uh, it's, it's, it's terrible. You know, it's very humid in the building. It's money. It's almost the same way it is outside. So you're not coming in for relief. When asked how the landlords respond to requests to improve the cooling, she stated they have not been supportive of the change. But my building is... 
managed by a corporation. So they always says, it's up to corporate. You know, it's corporate's final decision. You know, they pass it on. With global warming trends projected to continue, the issue of urban heat is not going away anytime soon. The challenge for Rochester City will be finding ways to remove the practical barriers to reducing heat to ensure the health of all residents. For Reclaiming the Narrative, I'm Laura Smith. A new act in Congress could change the way we cycle through consumer goods. Our reporter Mary Lawrence has more in this week's Inequality Index. Have you ever tried to get your laptop or cell phone repaired and the cost to repair was almost as much as buying an entirely new device? Or have you ever wanted to repair your device but didn't know how because there were no instructions or replacement parts were hard to find? Well, the right to repair movement is trying to solve these problems. Earlier this month, Monroe County's Congressional Representative Joe Morelli introduced the Fair Repair Act in Congress. His legislation is part of a broader right to repair movement that aims to make repairing devices easier and more affordable. If passed, the results could be dramatic. Currently, many high-tech consumer gadgets have to be repaired by the original equipment manufacturer, or OEM. If you have a problem with your iPhone, chances are you're going to an Apple store. But that's not the way it works with automobiles, for example. Your Honda can be repaired at almost any car mechanic, not just the Honda dealer. Right-to-repair legislation seeks to break the OEM's veritable monopoly on production and repair of their equipment. This could drive the cost down for consumers and make it easier to get repairs by increasing the number of repair shops to choose from. Right-to-repair legislation could have just as large an environmental impact as it has decreasing prices and increasing convenience. Kevin O'Reilly, director of the U.S. Public Interest Research Group's Right-to-Repair campaign, told us, The life cycle, the production, the transportation, the mining, and the disposal of all of these electronics is doing some serious harm. And that's something that we want to change. O'Reilly says right-to-repair legislation could disrupt the harmful throwaway manufacturing industries and cultural tendencies that cause billions of tossed-out consumer electronics and emitted tons of CO2 each year. One local group is getting ready to bring the right-to-repair message to life. Starting in August, the South Wedge Mission will begin hosting a repair cafe on the first and third Saturdays of the month, where community members can receive assistance and advice to fix their broken items. Community-driven efforts like this, combined with powerful legislation putting control over repairs back into the hands of consumers, have the potential to make a big impact on our wallets and on our planet. To learn more about the Right to Repair movement, you can listen to the full interview with Kevin O'Reilly on the Evidence of Design YouTube channel. For Reclaiming the Narrative, I'm Mary Lawrence, and this has been the Inequality Index from WXIR's Evidence of Design radio show.
Next week, Writers and Books will be holding a workshop aimed at helping local teens cultivate their story writing skills. Arts reporter Abby Clark has more. Joining me on the phone today is Almeida Whitus. Almeida is a renowned storyteller, theater artist, author, and poet who is taught on five continents. Almeida will be teaching a workshop titled Citizens, A Conversation on Race, Identity, and Democracy, happening August 9th through the 13th. Thank you, Almeida, and welcome to Art Blooms. Oh, thank you so much, Abby. In next week's class, students will be using a fictional story by your son, Amonu Benhe Brown, titled A Gift from a Stranger as a Foundation. This will act as a starting point to write reshaped digital stories. Can you tell us about this story? The setting is Louis Sweetshop. Louis Sweetshop opened up in the early 1900s. It was family-owned Sweetshop on the corner of Thurston Road and Brooks Avenue in the 19th Ward, Southwest Rochester. When my son wrote the, wrote the story, he's now living in Washington State, but he remembers when we lived in the 19th. I raised my children in the 19th Ward. And Louis Sweet Shop was just the place where anybody from the community was welcome. And so he wrote this story where Reginald, he inherits the ice cream parlor, the sweet shop, from his dad. Mm-hmm. And he is a beloved community elder. He's 75 years old in the story. And the community loves him, and especially one teenage boy around 15 years old, Adrian Numinius Curlew Third. I gave him that name, and he liked it. So Adrian shows up one day after school when there's this beautiful woman who's in the shop and she's actually driving cross country to California she's lost her way and she stopped in the sweet shop to uh, get directions and what they don't know her name they know her name she says I'm Serena Serena Domino and it's not like Serena Williams it's S-I-R-E-N-A Sirene Serena Domino and she's a serial killer Mm. and She's put, something has put in her mind that she has to go to California and kill everybody. So she's just trying to find her way, and she doesn't know why, but this is something that she has to do. I mean, my son has written a fantastic story. It sounds and it. And we want the young people, yeah, and we want the young people to read it and just do whatever they want to do with it. If it's a if it's a group story, if they do individual stories, individual characters, morph off of any other thing. That's what we want the young people to go away from this with this love of storytelling. So they'll be creating these digital storytelling pieces and uh, at the end they'll be presented to their loved ones. Um, And this is the last of the three week-long workshops you've offered this summer. The overall theme for this summer series is helping kids find their voice. What has this experience been like so far for both yourself, uh, your son, since he's been heavily involved, uh, you know, teaching these children how to write and some of the feedback you've heard from the kids? I was thinking that maybe I'm too old, maybe they don't get what I'm talking about. And from what I heard, the evaluations, Mm -hmm. Abby, the evaluations are Miss Whitus is the best. (laughs) We love her. 
she speaks to us. She doesn't, she, 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 she's really teaching us. She's teaching us history. She's talking about what's going on right now. She's helping us become better, better people, better citizens. What more can one ask for? Oh, man, that must have felt so good to read that. Um, my last question um, is kind of just a reflection of your, you know, career as a storyteller. You're a well-known storyteller. Um, you've been doing it since you were young and it's evolved into a career for you. Um, so what's one thing a student or really anyone can achieve by cultivating their storytelling skills? Well, you cultivate your, your ability to do critical thinking. And a lot of times critical thinking, uh, a critical thinking when you're in an academic, uh, setting, it's about the facts. Mm-hmm. The facts. Critical thinking is more than the facts. Critical thinking, it's about empathy. It's about understanding that you are me, I am you. Oh, does that sound like that Beatles song? And um, getting uh, the young people to understand, no, no, because they understand, to get them to know that they're on the right track, wanting there to be equality and justice, and more than compassion. Um, I keep going back to the word empathy, and I can't empathize it enough. The best thing you can do in your life is to educate yourself. And it's, it's more than facts. Oh, that's the other part I forgot. There's critical thinking combined with creative thinking. It's putting those together. Like Albert Einstein, he's known for knowledge is power. And everybody knows that. A few other people know knowledge is power, but imagination is everything. And very few people know knowledge is power, but imagination is everything. And it's inspiration that makes it work. Thank you so much, Almeida, for coming on to Art Blooms, sharing some of your experiences, and talking about next week's workshop with our listeners. Oh, thank you so much for... um giving me the space. It, it, it means a lot. It really does mean a lot. Almeida Whitus, world-renowned storyteller, will be teaching a workshop titled Citizens, A Conversation on Race, Identity, and Democracy from August 9th through the 13th at Writers and Books on University Ave. The class will be open to ages 12 and up, and the deadline to register is the end of the day, Monday, August 2nd. Classes will be held on Zoom. Link will become available upon registration. For more information on the class, pricing, and scholarships available, you can visit www.wab.org slash event slash citizens dash race dash identity dash democracy. I'm Abby Clark. Until next time, let art bloom. We end today's show with a tribute to the late radio journalist Glenn Ford. Ford died on Wednesday at the age of 71. Ford is co-founder of the Black Agenda Report, a weekly radio show that explores issues of national significance from a black left perspective. Ford visited Rochester in 2019 to deliver a keynote address as part of the Grassroots Radio Conference. We air excerpts of that speech entitled Information for Liberation. Black Radio News was once 
a very powerful tool that, if wielded correctly, could function as both a magnifier and an incubator of grassroots political movements. In fact, black radio news was birthed by the black mass movement of the 60s. It is a child of that movement and cannot be understood outside of that movement. And when the movement died, black radio news almost died with it. What is the power of news? It's a very basic question, but I want to ask it of you. You guys are involved in the dissemination of information. So what is the power of news? The news person acting as an editor, and every news person acts as an editor of a kind, decides what is important among the many events of the day. And he or she decides who are the most relevant people and the most relevant institutions to discuss those events of the day. News people decide who the credible sources are who are going to interpret these events of the day. News people decide who the key players are in the political arena. And they decide that by repeatedly calling on these particular players for comments about and in the news. That means that news people decide who the leaders of society are. Because if someone is constantly called upon and put, put into the news, then the people assume that those people must be the leaders of something. It goes with the game. In 1970, Ford got his first salary job at WRDW, a radio station owned by James Brown in Augusta, Georgia. That's where, in his words, he decided to use radio to, quote, thoroughly shake up that town, end quote. When I got there, it was uh, still the dark of night, and the news director uh, settled me in. Uh, he said, Glenn, uh, there's uh, your microphone and there's your recording equipment, and uh, oh, by the way, your name is Ford. They like uh, monosyllable names in radio. So I was no longer Glenn Rutherford, I was Glenn Ford. And, and then he pointed to the wall, uh, and there was a piece of paper taped to the wall, and he said, that's a list of all of the big black folks in town. And so uh, whenever you need comment on a story that comes across the newswire, uh, call one of those uh, guys. Uh, I said, okay, and uh, he left. And as soon as he left, <clears throat> I went to the list uh, to see who all these important black folks were. And the first one was Reverend this, and the second was Reverend Doctor, and the third one was Bishop that. And the whole list was a theocracy. Every single one of them were clergymen. And I was enraged. I, I was not about to further empower these people who had been collaborating with the racist power structure all of this time. And so I ripped the list off the wall and crumbled it up and threw it into the wastebasket. And I spent... And I spent the next week immersing myself in the real 
Augusta. I want to define the real leaders of Black Augusta. Since Black Augusta had uh, no other leadership visible except these black clergymen uh, whose list I had discarded. Uh, and the first thing I did was go into the public housing projects because I knew that in there was a rather loud black woman who all of the other tenants respected and listened to. And I knew that I would find her because she's always there, and I did. And she became my contact person on housing and uh, poor people's issues in general. And next, I went looking for that brother who jumps up every time the police beat down another brother. And he's always there, and I found him rather quickly, too. And he became my contact person on issues of criminal justice. And the next item on the list was to find that black businessman who's so frustrated and tells everybody about how the city and the county never give black people contracts. And he, of course, was there, too, and I found him quickly. And he became my economic development Person. And then I went looking for the even more easy to find frustrated black educator uh, who's sick and tired of butting her head against the Jim Crow educational system. And I found that person, too. And that became my person on education and so on and so forth uh, for that brief period of time until I finally had about seven or eight people uh, who I would treat as leaders. And I called them my committee of 10, even though there were only about seven or eight. And each and every newscast that I did had one or more of these people commenting on the news and very quickly making demands uh, for change. It, what, what, really, what really got to me was that in no time uh, these people uh, didn't need any coaching or prodding from me. They grew quickly, almost instantaneously, into the job of public leaders uh, rather than street leaders. And that's because they really were leaders all along. Ford's Committee of Ten decided that as their first political project, they would stage a boycott of the downtown stores in Augusta, Georgia, that refused to hire black employees. When we, when we put it out there, uh, the community uh, responded uh, with tremendous, uh, tremendous enthusiasm. It was like an awakening of that Augusta black uh, community. Uh, in fact, the enthusiasm was so, so general and so intense uh, that some of those preachers uh, who were on the list that I had thrown away and discarded uh, joined the, the movement to boycott the downtown uh, businesses, and I had to put them back on the radio. <laughs> and I was glad to do it. And one of them had one of the biggest churches in town. His church was set for the uh, for the event on the eve of the beginning of the boycott. That, that church uh, was uh, full to the rafters, and there were several hundred people uh, who were waiting around outside. And the high point, as far as most of the crowd was concerned, was when James Brown 
uh, sent word that he was flying in on his black jet. James Brown had a Learjet, a rented Learjet that he painted black. Uh, and whenever he would come into town, red lights would go off in the station and a sound effect would go roll, roll, roll. And a disc jockey was required to go on the air and say, the black jet is about to arrive, James Brown. You know, <laughs> so he was he was he had one of his minions announce that he was coming in uh, and he was going to uh, uh, contribute. $600 to a jail, uh, bail fund in case uh, anybody uh, went to jail. And the crowd just, uh, they went wild uh, because James Brown was their most famous son. And uh, they all listened to his radio station. And here he was on the people's side. And they were just, just overjoyed. Everybody was happy in that church that night except me because I knew something was up. And something was up because I knew that most of James Brown's uh, biggest advertisers were those downtown merchants. And the question had always been, how is Mr. Brown going to react uh, uh, to this? That was the late Glenn Ford, co-founder of the Black Agenda Report, delivering the keynote address at the 2019 Grassroots Radio Conference in Rochester. Ford passed away on Wednesday at the age of 71. And that does it for our show. Our reporters this week were Laura Smith and Mary Lawrence. Abby Clark is our arts and culture reporter. I'm Vanessa Ryland-Buntley. And I'm Darian Lehman. If you'd like to get involved and join our volunteer news team, you can send us a message at wxirnews at gmail.com. We want to thank you for supporting community-powered local news produced for WXIR 100.9 FM and rebroadcast by our friends at WAYO 104.3. That's it for this week. Until next time, take care of yourselves. And each other. Have a great weekend. <laughs>